welcome to Origins, a podcast about the money behind the money. This podcast is created by Notation, a first check venture capital firm based in Brooklyn, New York. We invest in amazing technical teams and projects in New York City on day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. This season of Origins is sponsored by Silicon Valley Bank and Cooley LLP. Silicon Valley Bank is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors, with a dedicated practice for emerging managers. They've been friends and partners to Notation since the beginning. To learn more about SVB services, visit svb.com. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It's the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. We've worked with Cooley since the very beginning. They've helped us form both notation funds. We recommend them to all the startups that we work with and many of our VC peers as well. Learn more about the firm and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors at CooleyGo.com. Shanlin Ma is the CEO and founder of Zola. She previously held senior product roles at Guilt Group, Chloe and Isabel, and Yahoo. She's an active angel investor in New York, and we're very fortunate to count her as an LP in notation. Shan. Hi. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for inviting me. So happy to, so happy to have you. Um, so I think uh, to start, it'd be great just to get um quick rundown on your background and uh, where you grew up and uh, some of the some of the backstory. Mm-hmm. Sure. So my uh, my background is that I was born in Singapore. I grew up in Australia and moved to the US because I really was wanted to be a part of the technology revolution that was underway. And you know, growing up in Australia, you feel it's an incredible place to grow up, but it's also really remote. And right. you, you know, kind of reading about all the great things going on in the world at that point in time, that was really the beginning of um, the internet right. revolution with companies like Yahoo and eBay and right. Amazon and Google just starting. And and that was at the time when I was thinking, you know, what would I like to be working in? And found that all the action was in Silicon Valley. Mm. So, And so this was in like, Around the dot com, like you early 2000s. you grew up your teenage years in Australia. Yes, and uh, were you like a tech nerd? I guess so, right? I I don't even think it. there was such a thing right, as a tech right, nerd. Right. I remember that um, my in my first year of undergrad college, I um, was seventeen and I had two to three different jobs that I was. You know, doing apart from going to school full time to support myself, and the first thing that I bought with my first full time paycheck was a computer, and okay. it was life changing. I was a pizza waitress, and wow. I would, um, wow, while I was like waiting tables and bringing pizzas to table, I would calculate in my head the percentage of the computer that I had just purchased <laughs> via that day's right. hours. So. What was the computer? Oh, it's so embarrassing. Yeah, it was a PC. It. Oh, I no. I don't remember. So it sounds like you were a tech nerd. Well, it it, it really, the, the most um, inspiring thing was that it gave me access to the rest of the world. Wow. So right. suddenly I could, you know, look anything right. 
up. <laughs> there wasn't that much to look up at that time, but it it really felt like I could email people on the mm. other side of the world that I didn't mm. know and and feel like I was there. Wow, that's amazing. Um so you moved to Australia as a as a little kid? Yes. Yes. Um and grew up there and went to college there too. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So how did you make the move? Uh, this was after college and you were fascinated by the internet and and you felt like it was all happening in Silicon Valley. How did you get there? Yeah, I had been working in Sydney for a few years, um, both doing kind of the, the traditional thing, like working in a big bank, as well as the more non-traditional um, job working in different small businesses. Right. Or I guess here you call them startups, but in Australia, right. they never kind of get past right. that small business stage. And tech companies, not well, or like so traditional small businesses. The one of the businesses that I worked in was doing um, marketing, online marketing for a software CRM okay. product, okay. and so I was working with them doing, you know, Google AdWords. Okay, um, spend and that's where I really my eyes started to open up to all the possibilities mm. that. You know, that you could do when I could see very clearly that spending, you know, a certain budget to market this CRM software to through Google AdWords campaigns was highly profitable. Right. And and there was not that many people doing it at that mm. time. And I realized, well, wow, I think this mm. this whole Google AdWords right. thing could be really interesting. Right. And and you know, the company that right. that's doing What year it, was this? Uh that was about two thousand and two, two thousand and three. Okay. okay. Yeah. And and at that time, I also um, had always really admired Yahoo as a company and Jerry Yang. And so I was reading about these kinds of companies mm. and using their products and seeing, you know, seeing how could I possibly get to one of them because mm. um, I had never known anyone to work in technology or work right. in the US and read that they were all f coming out of Stanford. So mm. thought... I guess I have to go to Stanford if I mm. want to work in technology because mm. that's where everyone else has gone um, and would love to do my MBA there. But it was hard to figure out how I would ever do that because I also had never known anyone to do an MBA right. <laughs> in the US. Right. So right. started to research, started to realize that actually in the US you need a four-year degree to apply for an MBA. Um, and I went back to do a fourth year of my degree because in mm. Australia, the average degree is three years. Mm. So, um, you know, out of my class of hundreds of people, there was maybe a small handful under five that might do a fourth year. Right. I went right. back to do the fourth year so I could apply. Right. Got, got you know, really first class um, in that honors year. And that's what enabled me to mm. then be able to apply to come here. Mm. Um, and, and, wasn't even sure that I would get into Stanford, so I right. applied to a lot of different schools, right. um, but was lucky enough to get into my dream school, and that was when my whole world changed. Amazing. I moved to the US in yeah. 2004, um, and then got exposed to really hundreds of classmates that were interested in right. technology, entrepreneurship, and and classes where I got exposed to you know the founders of Google and Intel and Yahoo and and really companies that I had always dreamed of and had on my bedroom wall, but never really touched in any right, way. Right, That's an amazing story. Um, post, post Stanford, you 
did product and marketing, I believe, right at at um, uh, at Yahoo, I guess, yes. which was like your dream company. Yes. Um, could you speak a little bit? I'm I'm curious about um, some of your early experiences at Yahoo and um, and then Gilt, learning about actually building mm-hmm. internet product. Yep. Yeah, I worked at Yahoo for two years after business school, and. That two years was really where I learned how to be a product person. Right, right. Um, I remember actually the person that ran the product marketing group um, at on the team that I was working for, his name was John Kim. And he is now president running Home Away. Okay. And he um, is it was before that the chief global product officer at Expedia. So he's an incredible product yeah. visionary in mind. And Everything I know, I think I learned from him, which was really how do you deeply understand the possible segments of customers that you could Mm -hmm. be going after? How do you clearly understand the market opportunity as well as their their needs, their pain points, Mm -hmm. the the competitive landscape, Mm -hmm. and do true deep user research to test your product ideas before you start really committing to launch them. And... And just that work day in and day out of making sure that that you know you can being as rigorous as possible at every step of that early product development yeah. cycle meant that in a big company like Yahoo, it was hard harder to launch new products because of the risk associated with launching anything new and the right. potential distraction from existing core right. products. But in a smaller environment, when I applied those same product skills. It meant I think that the the quality mm. of product launched was was much higher mm. than it would have been otherwise. Mm. The thing about Yahoo um, at the time that you know the time frame of two thousand and six to two thousand and eight was interesting because I was on the team um, the Overture team that was acquired by okay. Yahoo yeah. that really invented search yeah. advertising. Yeah, and that was a time when it was still you know a bit of a intense competition between Google and Yahoo mm-hmm. to see sure. um, who who could take this race. And I remember thinking um, that Yahoo was in you know, the kind of a very clear example of innovators dilemma where the, the big value and the big revenue driver was in that display advertising business. It was mm. how do we optimize the yeah. yahoo.com homepage every day to both kind of get as much traffic to all the different places that are competing for traffic within the Yahoo company, as well as serving the advertisers that are paying half a million dollars a day, as well as, you know, it's serving many, many different masters. And um, in comparison to that, Yahoo, sorry, Google just had this, the singular goal of how do we provide the best search results? And I think that, you know, while Yahoo had a pretty big team competing against Google in that, because it had so many other competing yeah. goals and uh, um, you know stakeholders, yeah. I think ultimately it it fell um, victim to the innovators' dilemma. Yeah, could you tell us a little bit about um, joining Gilt and mm-hmm. maybe is that is that where you met Kevin Ryan? Yes. Um, yes. yes. Tell us a little bit about that because I I. I know that you also worked together in the early days of Zola, correct? Correct. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Uh, so I, after 
um, two years at Yahoo, I started to realize that all the best people I was learning from and, and who were my managers and mentors were starting to leave. Were you go, in New York with Yahoo? No, I was in- You were in SF, okay. I was in the Bay Area. Yeah. And, and so I thought that was, that was not a good sign mm. and wanted to really go to a smaller startup where I could um, have a, a greater impact and also just get to launch products. Yeah. And was looking in the Bay Area, but at that time um, was also starting to shop on this, the new site called Guilt. Okay. Yeah. Uh, which was just yeah. emerging. Right. And one day while I was shopping on Guilt, looked at the team page, realized it had an incredible team, a, f a founding team. Yep. Um, looked at the jobs page, realized it had the perfect job that I was looking for. Mm. And I did what everyone says you definitely should not do, which is I applied through the website for that right. job. Yeah. <laughs> and that typically doesn't work out. <laughs> I don't think anyone had told me. Right. Um, but it ended up working out. That's great. Uh, I, I, I think uh, a combination of kind of, you know, pushed and hustled my way right. into to making them right. uh, make me an offer <laughs> by by ultimately kind of volunteering to fly myself to New York to interview mm. with everyone I would need to meet in order to to get the job, and moved to New York and got to be the the first product person at Gelt. Right, got to really be there during the first four years of incredible growth. Yeah, and. During that time, we launched a lot of new businesses um, in expanding into the men's, home, kids, yeah. experiences, yeah. travel categories, and then got um, through that experience, was able to launch the mobile apps, which mm -hmm. at that time was really when the iPhone was yep. kind of in its early days, yep. launched the iPad app while on the same day that the iPad device launched, and got to because I got to work with Kevin Ryan so closely during the early years, um, also had the opportunity to pitch an idea for another business that Gilt should get into, which was the food and wine division, and ultimately got the green light to launch and run that, mm. uh, which was kind of like launching a mini startup within right. the, the umbrella of a bigger startup. Right. So you had, So I guess through that, you went from kind of being like, solely focused on product to actually like really building a full-fledged business. Exactly. Right. And right. at that point um, was uh, transitioned out of the product role into a GM role yep. um, where you know, it's really responsible for the P&L and every single function within right. that particular right. business unit, Right. Um, which was really the best training for being right. a, a startup CEO. Yeah. So tell us about how Zola happened. Uh, so, it happened first and foremost. Um, my co-founder Nobu yeah. and I decided that we wanted to work together again. Okay. So Nobu was the head of the user experience design team at yeah. Guilt, and he and I partnered together on many different products. Yeah. We loved working together. We found we were able to build great, innovative products that won a ton of awards and that users loved, and really, um, you know, came back to every day. And then we both left Gelt after four years to go to different startups. Okay. I didn't and, realize that. Yeah. I and, thought Zola came out right, uh, right after Gelt. No, Okay, you guys right worked after. on a couple other things. Yeah, okay. we worked on other separately. things separately. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, many f friends do, 
um, we're catching up mm -hmm. after we hadn't worked together for a while and just checking in with each other. And you know, I remember very clearly at lunch, we kind of looked at each other and I said, you know, Nobu, how's it going? Are you enjoying the new role? And he looked back at me and paused and said, you know, it's good, but it's not as great as when we were working together. Mm. And I thought for a moment, and then I said, I totally agree. Mm. And then we kind of looked at each other. We're like, we've always talked about starting something together. Mm. Um, why aren't we doing that? Mm. We should just do that. Like, we have no good reason. Right, right. So, <laughs> that was really the the turning point. Right. where we So, it started with you two mm -hmm. rather than, hey, we found this uh, market or idea or something, we need to like go do that immediately. It started with you guys wanting yes. to work together. Yes. Yeah. yeah. How did you find the market or find, you know, what yeah. the product that you ultimately wanted to build together? Yeah. We started thinking about what are the things that we personally use? What are the products that we have spent money on and, and that we think could be much better? And 2013, which was the year that we were starting, yep. was also the year that all my friends were getting married at the same mm. time. It's that year in everyone's mm. life. And yep. Every weekend yep. you're going to a wedding. Yep. And I was buying a lot of presents and I was telling Nobu, these wedding registry sites, which are the department store right. websites, are some of the worst e-commerce shopping experiences right. I have ever seen. Right. And I was complaining to him about all the ways in which it was terrible. And he... And Nobu's married, and so he was saying, yeah, when he and his wife were setting up their wedding registry, that was, mm. you know, they were getting into a huge number of fights, and it was mm. causing a lot of drama because the experience of registering was so painful. They were going to call off the wedding because of the wedding registry. <laughs> well, I don't know if they were going to call it <laughs> no, off, but there was definitely, yeah. uh, I know he, the wife, his wife called him obnoxious uh, right. multiple times. Right. So, um we started to think and talk about how would we do it differently mm. if we could create any kind of wedding mm. registry from scratch. And and so really understanding what the user pain points were was a very classic mm. product development process right. where we went back to all our friends who were getting married in right. the upcoming years and started to understand what would they want, um, how were they thinking about their registry and, and what was wrong with the current registries today. Yeah. And started to really hear very consistent things, which, you know, three big pain points kept coming up in every single conversation. Mm. Um, those were one, couples today, they're millennials, they're getting married older, they live together. So, they want experiences as well as products, as well as cash. Right. Right. And they want it all in one place. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't available anywhere mm -hmm. else. And then the second is couples today, they're spending more than ever before on their wedding because mm. they want it to be beautiful and personal and reflect who they are. And they want their registry to be just as personalized. Mm. And they want to do that personalization mm. on their mobile device. Right. And turns out no one else let them do that. Right. And then the third thing was we found, which was really surprising, was that couples were saying, you know, the worst part of the wedding registry process is when you start to receive the gifts, which was surprising because you'd think that would be the best part. Mm. <laughs> but what people complained about over and over again was that with any other registry, it was 
you had no control over mm. what you received or when you received it mm. or right. you know if you wanted to return it you had to receive it and then take it back and it was just a very manual process and we said you know that this is very easily fixed using design and technology how about we just give the couple control and don't send anything to them until they actually want it so mm. they can virtually exchange anything and have full right. control so that's the that was the beginning of zola and we solved those with the first product and still today i think we're the only registry that does all those things mm. and that's why we've been the fastest growing wedding company right. in the country right um so you had this product insight um, you guys built the first product together. Mm -hmm. Was it just like it just worked out of the gate from the beginning? I would say that the the core product market fit yeah. was clear from the beginning in mm. that it was clear that we were solving mm. the, the top pain points and what users really wanted and needed. But that wasn't to say that we totally crushed it right, <laughs> in right. every single way. So right. uh, I think what we saw is that people clearly wanted the what was different about the product but the one thing we did not realize until after we launched was that when people were saying it was really more about the merchandising assortment mm. and so while people said we really will want to register for experiences and cash and things to do together mm. as well as products um initially what i interpreted that as as like Couples want to register pri primarily for the brands that they use today. Hmm. So brands like right. you know, Airbnb or right. SoulCycle, those I think will be the bulk of, hmm. of the registry. And, and what we quickly realized once we started to see the data come in through the first registries was that, yes, couples do want experiences, but actually what they really still need and want and must have is all the classic traditional registry mm. items Interesting. That, right. that you would find anywhere else. And we didn't focus on that in the beginning and we had to adjust our focus onto that pretty quickly. Right. So as you have grown yeah. to 120 people now, yeah. and I assume you will continue to grow yeah. this year and next, what have some of the learnings been and, and some of the maybe joys of it and also <laughs> fears and less loved parts? Yeah. So one of the, we what we talk a lot about at Zola is what are all the lessons that we have had previously together right. as a team, right? Uh, because a lot of us did work at Guilt together, and mm -hmm. a lot of us actually decided we really want to work together again, mm -hmm. and so our entire leadership team at Zola is has worked together before, right? And the so we get to talk a lot about shared learnings from the past, and one of the biggest shared learnings we talk about is um, the rate at which you hire people and expand the product portfolio and expand the different mm. business units within the company. Mm. So I talked a bit about you know, during my first four years at Gilt, the business really grew and had probably six to seven different businesses and products. Yep. And I felt in a in, very short period of time in, in, within yeah. four years yeah. and yeah. it grew from about probably 30 people when I joined to over a thousand people. Oh, wow. Four years wow. later. Wow. So that, you know, that's a, that's a different, <laughs> different type of scale. Yeah. Um, and from my vantage point, it felt um, like that, that rate of expansion was probably not the right thing to do. Right. And so at Zola, we almost, 
adjusted in the exact opposite mm. direction mm. where Nobu and I talked in the early um, weeks and months of the business of really focusing on the wedding registry product as the the one and only yeah. product for the first few years of yeah. the business. And it was only last year, once we had been live for three years right. with registry, that right. we launched our second product, right. which was Zola Weddings. Yep. And that um, that was really one of the catalysts of growing the team. But up yep. until four, uh, sorry, up until, yeah, last year, so four years in, we had probably, you know, 50 to 60 people. Right. And, right. and so it was a, a small team size yep. for a really long time. And yep. I think that, um, that made a lot of the challenges around people management mm -hmm. much easier because you just yep. have less people. Right. Right. Now, yeah, I think the now you asked about well, what you know, how do we think about um, scaling and and yeah, as it relates to team size, and the the org structure is something that I have personally taken away from every company as either the reason that things go really well mm. or things go mm. really badly within a company. Right, I think ultimately. It comes down to really, you know, a couple of things that make or break a business and org structure is one of them. Wow. Um, and, and so at Zola, while it is, you know, not perfect, we've, we've tried to figure out how can we maintain a structure that, that still maintains the core team approach. Because the nice thing about working in a startup, particularly in the early stage, is that it's, a small team, you get to collaborate, you get yeah. to move quickly together yeah. and feel like you were all kind of equals in this core team. And as a product person, I love the core team approach because yeah. that's how I've done my best work. So what I have started to think more and more about recently is even as we scale with the number of people in the yeah. company, how can we always be organizing within core teams yep. around different objectives so that everyone feels like they're still part yeah. of a small yeah. fast moving team. right right what are, what are the what have been just personally like i'm curious what have been some of the challenges and and fears of you as you've grown like there's always that i feel like as an organization grows there's always that bit of nostalgia for the early days when it was really small and lean and yeah. and i guess i guess building having these core product teams maybe keeps some of that alive yeah even as the organization grows but um I'm curious, you know, personally, as as the organization has grown, um, some challenges over the last four or five years. And what keeps me up at night is the dual question of, are we growing number of people and number of products too quickly? Mm. Or are we growing mm. number of people and number of products not quickly right. enough? <laughs> right, right. And, and I guess that's more art than science. I don't think there's ever the right yeah. answer. Yeah. Um, if only you could A-B test that, right, that right. would be awesome. <laughs> right, right. How do you create balance in your own life? Oh, my gosh. This is the hardest question. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right, you're now your CEO of 120-person organization, growing very quickly. I assume, I assume it's the bulk of your time. <laughs> um, how have you thought about as the organization continues to grow creating balance between your work and your life i don't i don't think uh i 
I do a lot of it, <laughs> a right. lot of balancing. Right. Um, so I, I do believe that on days and months and weeks where I've been thinking and working 24-7 nonstop yeah. about the, the um, questions, open questions at Zola, that often it's hard to really take my head out and, right. and look at it um, objectively. Right. And often I think, oh, I wonder if, um, you know, I just had a pause from thinking about it for a moment that I could actually come back with a more creative and interesting mm -hmm. answer. Mm -hmm. And the, um, the way that I try to clear my head is... <laughs> This is a nerdy answer. Yeah. I actually like to think yeah. of other businesses. Okay. Uh, you know, so kind of okay. along the lines of this right. podcast, just think of right. other startups that either I'm invested in or my mm. friends have started mm. where I think about you know, the problems that they're facing or the challenges or questions and think about, oh, from that company's perspective, how are they answering that mm. question? And if I look at it across 10 companies, I can see 10 different answers and then kind of helps me think mm. about oh how do i apply that to zola right so that's on a kind of mind clearing right you know you clear your mind yeah. by thinking about other business issues <laughs> got it <laughs> i also soul cycle okay yeah, and i try works. to meditate okay and i try to um hang out with friends but they mm -hmm. all will tell me that i do a terrible job right right um okay switching gears for uh for a minute to the investing side I know you do a little bit of angel investing, and uh, I'd be curious to know when you started and, and how you approached that part of your, your mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. I started um, somewhat um, accidentally almost right. when I found that some of my friends who I'd worked closely with before at Gilt mm. um, were starting companies around the same time that I was starting Zola or a, bit, a, few, you know, a year or two after I was starting Zola, they were starting companies. There were and a ton of people that came out of Gilt that, yes. that started companies. Yes. I mean, like maybe one of the most, you know, um, fertile ecosystems, I feel like, in, in New York. Yeah, I think that. Group Me. Yes. Um, Zola, obviously. What are some yes. others? So many. Bravely. Yeah, bravely, right. Um, flow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. Many. There are a lot of talented people there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, it was a very entrepreneurial, it attracted a lot of very mm. entrepreneurial people. Yeah. And if you were entrepreneurial, you probably did really well and loved and thrived at Guild. Right, so right. A lot of people came out of that. Yeah. So a lot of friends then started, started, another startup and I wanted to support them and I wanted to give back. And so that's how I started. Um, and after, you know, a couple of investments, I realized that I think I have a bit of an unfair advantage in that I had worked with many people um, very closely who mm. were starting companies and I could really mm. see whether or not I right. think they would be, right. know, I personally believe they would be great right. um, startup founders. So I had unique perspective into them as founders. And then I had a unique perspective into consumer commerce, business models, mm. um, and what I thought might work or not work I, in a B2B product that right. serves consumer businesses. Right. Um, so those those categories are now things that I tend to invest in 
and because it is still very much a a weekend hobby yeah um i found that i just focus on the the companies and the teams where i have unique insight and right. while there might be many of other great companies that don't fall into that criteria that you know those i don't have time to do the diligence on those right right um but the number one thing that i realized actually yeah. very quickly after investing in a few of my friends startups yeah. is the amount that i was able to learn by getting to see other businesses that um Mm. compared to just my own yep so getting to so actually i was kind of thinking on the the train right here what are the the lessons that i've taken right. away from the i guess last few years of angel investing yeah two yeah. years yeah yeah um now about 17 companies okay and have was thinking i think there's probably like five big lessons that okay. i've really gotten and learned and out of the these these companies um so you know, happy to share those yeah please please so number one is i know you know, it, it's a very much a vc investor cliche yeah to talk about the we team. love those here <laughs> but it really is yeah. all about the team yeah and what i've realized is that in the startups that have really accelerated beyond their peer set it's where the founder or someone on the founding team has a very specific superpower or skill yeah. that's necessary for that particular business or market um so you know, just as an example there's a company in new york called anvil where the founder rodney has worked in supply chain his entire career mm. and his company is providing an on-demand supply supply chain for D to C companies okay. or product manufacturers, yep. and so you know while Rodney may at some point need marketing and branding help, and he has a great UX designer, um, all these things are very important. But he has the one most important thing that he needs to succeed in his business, which is he just deeply understands he's probably the area and his. One motivated of, yeah. to go he's one of it. the best supply chain mm. analysts mm. i would say um and thinkers in the world mm. and he is passionate about it he loves it right. he knows every right. you know factory or right. knows the guy who knows the woman who right. knows the factory uh, and that is that is the hardest part about yeah. that business um the second realization i've had is that grit and endurance and persistence of the founders will trump almost any any yeah hard time yeah in the business, totally agree. multiple times over um and and not and and lacking that means that you know obviously we've seen this lots of times when they go and gets tough and it always gets tough at some point yeah people bail yeah yeah uh, Yes, or they, 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 you know, throw their hands up and are like, "Oh, this is a hard problem. I can't fix it, so I'm going to work on other problems." Yeah, and I think yeah. the the companies that end up um, thriving are ones where the founder sees the problem, sees it's really hard, and digs their heels mm. into it. Yeah. Um, three is I've seen actually you know, in across these seventeen companies. 
probably hundreds of different VCs invested in these companies, a really surprisingly wide distribution around the extent to which VCs will help companies. And this, I didn't realize that before, but there is a huge gap in the market between marketing and perception of, of various VC firms versus the reality to which they help. Interesting. Um, and so. Interesting. And, and so, um, in other words, like you've discovered through the process of angel investing, and obviously I assume also raising a lot of capital for Zola and others that, uh, just because a VC is maybe perceived as being helpful or really well marketed or whatever else, um, in, in many cases, there's other VCs that are super under the radar and actually do better work and are more helpful. Exactly. Mm. Exactly. Interesting. What are some of the, what are, what are the most helpful areas that you think VCs can, can move the needle on? Because there's a lot of people also that, and mm -hmm. founders and VCs that, particularly actually, I think, in the last year or two, yeah. um, as some of the VC marketing has gotten a little tired, mm -hmm. there's some folks that just say, hey, look, we're financial mm -hmm. in nature. We're capital first mm -hmm. and foremost, and maybe we'll help here and there. But yeah. even even really well-respected VC firms, like um, we had someone actually we interviewed uh, recently, and we were talking about apparently, you know, Founders Fund, for example, mm -hmm. primarily, you know, says that they're financial in nature and mm -hmm. they're not, they don't have big, you know, platform teams and whatever else. And mm -hmm. that seems to work just fine. So mm -hmm. I'm curious to know, um, in your experience, do you, do you think it actually is necessary for a VC firm to add value? And, and if so, what are the maybe couple key areas that you think have actually moved the needle for you or for, or yeah. for other yeah. companies that you work with? I would classify the three categories of, of most helpful activity as being help with fundraising, yeah. help with hiring, and help with customer acquisition, whether yep. that's you know, big company client acquisition or yeah. you know, marketing acquisition. But on the fund, like just to illustrate on the fundraising point, I think many, you know, some, some VCs will say, oh, we will certainly thought partner with you on fundraising. And they'll be, come up with like, here's a 10 list of people I like, so you should talk to them. Yep. Um, and that seems to be you know, pretty common uh, amongst the different companies I've seen. The best, most helpful VCs will say, what are you looking for? And let's think about what is really right for this company yeah. and this stage. And I'm not just going to give you names of people I know. Let's also think about what about people I don't know. Right. And let's right. put that list together. And maybe right. I can't help intro you to them, but at least we've come mm. up with a list that's very tailored for you mm. and not just my top 10 go-to people mm. every time because mm. we help each other out. On yeah, teams. maybe there's some, or and also I imagine some of that is driven by um, a little bit of vulnerability in that, you know, the VC wants to, uh, at least be perceived as like knowing everyone and knowing all the all the best you know upstream firms I guess and it takes a little bit of vulnerability to say hey actually you know what this firm so and so is actually I think like the best investor here but I don't know them so let's figure out yeah. a way to get in yeah, yeah. interesting yeah. interesting and you think that is more valuable than just saying hey here's the top five VC firms <laughs> and go chat with them yes yes okay I do <laughs> okay. <laughs>
Uh, and uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think it comes down to as a founder and as you know, I've heard from other founders I work with, you want an investor who is really going to hustle for you because you are really hustling for your company, right. yourself and your right. founders and right. your investors as well. Right. So I think it becomes really clear who are those people. Um, so the fourth thing that I've, I've realized over the last two years is I've seen startups um, spend and whether it's spend time or resources on things that I didn't think were worth the investment in the early days, but seeing them invest in area, certain areas early on has made me think differently about how mm. I invest our resources. Mm. So I think the best example that comes to mind here is there's one early stage founder who was really looking for a, a great best in class CTO and didn't have a network in New York. And so was taking a few months to find that person through their network. And they hired an exec search mm. firm to, yeah. to find that CTO, yeah. first CTO. And the reason it made me really reflect on on the way I do things is because I would never have done that. Right. Just because it's... It's really expensive, expensive and yeah. it was probably half my <laughs> seed right. funding budget right. to do that. Uh, but in seeing him do that, it made me realize that he probably saved months, if not years of mm. pain because he found an incredible CTO. Things were probably um, you know, accelerated versus... Mm you know, what he what would have happened if he didn't use right. that search firm. And so ultimately well worth the cash. Uh, and then the last thing I'll say is that uh, there's always kind of innovative things that startups will do to really differentiate themselves from competitors in scrappy ways, um, particularly on the marketing side. And just in getting to see what has worked across 17 mm. different companies mm. has, I think, made me... Um, think differently about our marketing and interesting as in like some creative clever innovative ways beyond just the traditional channels that people think of like a google or facebook or or others search exactly yeah, and yeah. the yeah. example i can think of here is so hawthorne which is a new york startup that's building a personalized men's um body brand and fragrance okay. brand they did a collaboration with this up-and-coming mba star called zach levine where they did a collaboration a product mm. collaboration with him he then tweeted out multiple times a day the limited edition number of bottles that were mm. left um and it was related mm. to you know games that he was playing right. and so can bringing that up-and-coming star in a certain you know uh, kind of on a certain team where they saw they had a lot of already kind of influential customers right. and and partnering with that starter to build his brand through a product right. collaboration, I think um, was smart for a mm. startup that does not have a huge budget. Right. Um, you're, in addition to being an angel investor, uh, you're an investor in a few funds. Is that correct? Two. Uh, two. Um, one of them is one of them is ours. Thank <laughs> you for that. <laughs> Notation. Um, and we really appreciate it, and um, uh, and uh, excited to have oh, you part I of it. I appreciate it too. Um, 
Tell me about the other fund. The other fund is Female Founders Fund. Yeah. And Which is here in New York. Also in yeah. New York. Yeah. Uh, and the so really the reason or the way this you know both came to be about is pretty unique. But the Female Founders Fund um, started after Zola started. And okay. so met Anu, the founder of that yeah. fund, um, once we were a year or so into Zola. And we didn't know each other, but she just kept hustling to mm. get into Zola. Mm. And I really admired mm. that she would not give up. Mm. Like she would, mm. she really. And like what? Like emailing would text you, me, texting. That's awesome. Multiple times. Right, right. She that's just awesome. would not take no for an answer. Right. That's awesome. And I, I thought, wow, <laughs> I like that. So first of all, I don't think I've ever um, had that level of, persistence yep. uh, from any any other person or context. But then once sh she actually invested, I found that the Female Founders Fund was one of the most helpful investors, even mm. though they didn't have you know, a huge right. um, share of the company. They went above and beyond on every single thing I asked them to help mm. with, whether it was hiring, marketing, um, partnerships, yep. and yep. And it wasn't just that um, they they helped when they could. They helped when I most needed help. Right. And so, when I started to speak to other founders who were in Female Founders Fund, they all said exactly the same thing. Mm. They were all like, oh, I can't believe how incredibly helpful mm. they are. And um, actually, many of the other founders in portfolio also say, you know, I if if I ever have the opportunity, I would also love to invest. So now, um, you know, good friends with the founding team and all the other founders there and really believe, obviously, in in the power of yeah. female founders. Yes. Yes. Good. <laughs> um we we can end there, but I'm I'm curious just anything else you'd like to you'd like to add. I know you're I know you're a listener of Origins. Yes, I love the Origins. I'm podcast. curious I'm curious I'm curious why. <laughs> Actually, that's the way that we we first started chatting. It is. It is. Yes. I'm curious I'm curious why and I don't mean to be um <laughs> skeptical of our own podcast. <laughs> but <laughs> but um you know, as a founder, like what 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 a, I'm just I mean, as yeah. Someone looking for feedback, yeah. really more than anything. As a founder, what what intrigued you about yeah. it? And maybe this is, yeah. and I don't want this to be, yeah, self no. self serving, self aggrandizing. But but I'm curious what 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 intrigues you, and maybe what we could be doing similarly or different going forward. Well, as a first time founder, I in the early rounds of fund fundraising, I was so focused on just raising the round right, right. that I didn't really step back to think about who am I bringing onto the Zola team and ultimately who is this going to advantage um, and benefit when, when Zola mm. is a great outcome. Mm. And I think what I've realized in subsequent rounds is that, you know, if, if all goes well, Myself and many people on my team are going to be working our guts out <laughs> for many years to come. And I want the people to benefit. I mm. want people that I'm working for to be ones that, that I want, that I would pick to be on my team. Mm. Um, 
I think you know, winning matters to me. Winning as a team matters to me. And I want to know who compromises um, the team. I think the best example I can think or the best analogy I can think of is, you know, um, there's a video where you can kind of see different pers perspectives starting like in someone's backyard and then the video kind of zooms up and you see that person's right. neighborhood and then right. the city and the right. state and the country right. and then the, the world and the globe and the universe and the solar system. <laughs> right. And I right. think a lot of that is hmm. it's kind of a great analogy for um, you know, being what a single um, company within mm. this whole galaxy ecosystem. Um, I think the the Origins podcast really helped me zoom up mm. a little bit, interesting, and see see more of of the context that I'm in. Right. Let's end there. Okay. Shan, <laughs> thank you so much. We really do appreciate it, um, and. Uh, uh, so excited to watch Zola grow in well, the years to come. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This podcast was created by Nick Charles and Alex Lines, partners at Notation Capital. Notation is a first check venture capital firm in New York. We work with technical founding teams in the trenches from day zero. You can find us on Twitter at Notation Capital. Thanks to Cooley for sponsoring this episode. Cooley LLP is the global law firm for tech, life sciences, and other high-growth industries. It is the world's most active venture capital law firm in forming funds and completing investments. At Notation, we love working with Cooley and recommend them to all the companies we work with. Learn more about the firm at Cooley.com and check out its dedicated site for startups and investors, CooleyGo.com. We'd also like to thank Silicon Valley Bank. SVB is the bank of the world's most innovative companies and their investors. Their experts help innovators, enterprises, and investors move their bold ideas forward. Tap into the experience and connections of the SVB team for advice on strategic, operational, and tactical issues and limited partner insights. Silicon Valley Bank is a member of the FDIC. If you like this episode, please share and remember to tag it with the hashtag OpenLP. We'd also like to thank Ben Glaue, who is our amazing audio engineer. You should work with him. You can find Ben on Twitter at visible underscore sound.